Claudia Dickens, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. We appreciate it. Choir, thank you. Musicians, thank you one and all. We appreciate it very much. Folks, I would like to add my heartiest amen to everything that Claudia said just a moment ago. Um, Once in a while, though I've been here a week or two, um, once in a while I am asked, does it bother you to have little ones in church? It bothers me when we don't. Uh, And then I usually am asked the added question, uh, well, doesn't it distract if a child does something? And uh, my, part of my usual response is, if you had to sit on a pew and your feet didn't touch the floor, and every time you squirmed a little bit or whatever mama or daddy told you not to do that, uh, and I hope none of you parents have the remedy that my dad had. When uh, I was growing up, and and in the place of a lot of these young people today, children, um, I don't know. I guess it's something that's true at all churches all the time. People have places that they sit. And, you know, if you get in their pew before they get here, you know, God help you. Uh, And my, my mom and dad were like that. And the bad part about it was... When I was a kid growing up, ladies wore hats. You know, I mean the big ones. And where my folks sat, there was a lady who had one of these, mm-mm-mm. And I ended up right behind her, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And I kept thinking, you know, I'm going to move this way or I'm going to move this way. Then she'd move one way and I have to. And when I moved more than once or twice, my dad never looked at me. He never looked at me. But I sat between him and mom, and my dad would just, his hand would just, uh, and I got pinched like crazy. <laughs> now, I've had a child, they tell me, I just holler, you wouldn't do that one time, my daddy. Uh, so, I, I, I'm more distressed when kids are not here. This is a worship service. We do have a worship service for them, but they're welcome here. I think, I guess, the only thing I would really object to was, would be teenagers sitting in the balcony and making airplanes and flying them off the balcony. Uh, but uh, kids are welcome, and we thank God that we have people who are teaching them to worship, uh, not just to play, but to worship. So, Claudia, thank you for filling in for Dave today. Uh, David is in with Kim in Dominican Republic uh, with uh, the Peavies, our missionaries who are there. And uh, so they will be back this coming Wednesday, I believe it is. Thank you. If you have your Bible, turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation. Second chapter. You ha- <clears throat> excuse me. You have in your worship folder an outline for uh, the message of this morning. If you take notes or find something like that to be helpful. You may use that, of course, uh, just designed to be an aid to the message this morning. Before we look into the Word of God, would you pray with me, please? 
Our Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in these moments might be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The significance of the church at Ephesus is evident as we read its story on the pages of sacred scripture. These seven verses teach us at least one crucial, crucially important lesson for our day. There are a lot of things wrong with our day and a lot of things wrong with our society. You know them as well as I do. I'm not going to labor on those. What I am interested in this morning is our relationship to our Lord. The church at Ephesus had a problem, a serious one. We'll look at some of this and, and uh, have some comment to make about this in a few moments. So the church at Ephesus was very important. It teaches us lessons for today. But the city of Ephesus was also important. And so to give us a bit of background and perhaps help us to understand the church in this city, we want to look at... Uh, some reasons why the city of Ephesus was important. And I want to mention three reasons why it was important. It was important from a commercial standpoint. There were three great trading routes all converging on the city of Ephesus, one from the north, one from the south, and one from the east. And again, they all converged there. And that kind of gave the, the city... Uh, uh, its own particular reputation and importance. In fact, those coming after that, some expositors today refer to Ephesus as the vanity fair of the ancient world. So it was important from a commercial standpoint. It was also important from a political standpoint. Ephesus was a free city. Rome allowed certain cities in their, shall I use the word kingdom, uh, the Roman government allowed some particular cities to be free cities from a political standpoint. That is, they were allowed a great measure of self-government, and Ephesus was one of those cities. Third, it was important from a religious standpoint. Uh, frankly, I find this uh, a rather amazing thing considering the time uh, the importance of the city of Ephesus is evident from the book of Acts. Uh, it was a city, it was the city that was the home of the great temple of Artemis or Diana. Now, the thing that strikes me as so unusual, uh, and perhaps some of you within the sound of my voice this morning have visited the city of Ephesus. I have not had that privilege but in that temple of Diana, there were, it was 425 feet long. It was 220 feet wide, which was an imposing structure in any day. And there were 127 columns in that temple, each over 60 feet in height. So it was a, a magnificent structure, and it was the center of worship of Diana. One other thing that stands out to me is that 
this was a city, and this will be a familiar term with us today. It's in such use and so much stir about it. But Ephesus was a sanctuary city. People who had committed crimes could flee to that city and to the precincts of the temple of Artemis or Diana and be safe. The law couldn't touch them. And so uh, you would imagine, and with Ephesus you would certainly be correct, uh, with all of that said, the city of Ephesus was an evil city. Uh, criminals would make their way there. And, and that was part of the, the, the social structure of the city. Um, and nothing could be done about it. They, criminals would find refuge from the law. And they, they, they did this by going to the religious courts. So Ephesus was an important city, but it was an extremely evil city. There's an old story about Heraclitus, one of the poets who lived in that city. It was noted that he never smiled. And someone stopped him one day and asked him about that. And he said the reason he could never smile was because he lived in Ephesus and saw all of the evil that surrounded him every single day. He was referred to as the weeping prophet. But there's another thing that makes Ephesus quite interesting to me. That being the kind of city that it was, the, its importance commercially, religiously, and being a free city politically, and all of this. It's interesting to me, especially interesting to me, that John spent a large portion of his life in that city. Here's a man of God. And in my mind, I wonder why he was drawn to and why he spent so much time. Obviously, the answer to that question is that that's what God had for him. God directed his heart, his life, and that's where he was. Interesting also that when the Apostle Paul began his missionary journeys, he spent more time in the city of Ephesus than he did anywhere else. And frankly, I think that's why Ephesus is the first in this series of seven letters from our Lord to seven churches. And we want to look first at the command. Chapter 2, verse 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now this address, this is, this is the address to the church at Ephesus. Now, the word angel is most commonly used as, to refer to angelic beings. But you do find in the Gospels, and obviously we believe here too, the word angel referring to human messengers. Probably the pastor. I love to say that. <laughs> Pastors were called angels. That was in a different day, wasn't it? But probably the reason for that was because that was the individual who was delivering the message. So it was written to the angel of the church, or to the messenger, to the pastor of the church. He would deliver this message that's coming in just a moment to the church, to the saints there. 
There follows a description also of our Lord. Continuing in verse 1. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. John has already helped us in some of the symbolism and some of the identifications that are used here. Uh, particularly in chapter 2, verse 1. And if you will notice chapter 2, verse 1, but then go back and read chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. For the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You know, folks, uh, it happens in every book of the Bible, but I think particularly with the Revelation. Uh, people ponder so about the interpretation of the book. Well, oftentimes, God's Word interprets itself. That's what we're doing here. That's why we know what's going on in chapter 2, verse 1, because we've read verse one, or chapter 1, verse 20. Often, the Bible interprets itself, and that's what it's doing here. John has given us this symbolism, so we read in chapter 2, verse 1, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And in that we have a description of the Lord walking among the churches. This is the way he's presented. Our Lord is a living person. Chapter 1, verse 18, the living one was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The Lord is pictured here as walking among the churches, the same way the priest in the Old Testament went to the tabernacle. What did the priest do in the tabernacle? Well, he took care of the lampstands daily, putting oil in the lampstands to see that they would burn, trimming wicks to see that the flame would uh, not be hindered or diminished in any way. And the priest in the Old Testament did that day after day after day. And our Lord is presented in that same fashion. He is the one ministering to the light of the churches. He still does that. This is not something that happened in the first century. Just then, he ministers to the churches today. There's no one on this earth, there's no one in heaven or earth who knows the churches like the Lord Jesus Christ. To whom do they belong? They belong to him. The church belongs to him. Dear people, the church doesn't belong to trustees. Church doesn't belong to deacons. Church, God forbid, churches belong to pastors. Lord, deliver us from that. The church belongs to him. He owns them. He, he bought them with his precious blood, and he ministers to the churches today. He is walking among the churches today. Surely, he regards the churches in a most devoted way. He is concerned about his churches. Well, when we come to the church at Ephesus in particular, in, in your outline here, there are seven commendations that uh, he gives to this church. It's an amazing church, really. I won't spend a lot of time on them. But in verses 2 and 3, and then down in verse 6, let me read them for us. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil, and perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men. 
and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. Verse 3, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Verse 6, yet this you do have, that you hate the doctrine, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So, first of all, he says, I know your deeds. The word there is an, a word that's used in the original language for aggressive works, active works. Um, I know thy works. It was that kind of church. Uh, they were busy doing things of which God approved, and God led, in, led them in doing it. Uh, dear people, in, in a New Testament kind of church today, the church is active. I don't believe that God ever called anybody into retirement to sit in a pew and do nothing. I do not believe that, and I do not think that can be sustained on the pages of Scripture. You come to church, what for? Well, we come together to worship, but we walk out the door to, to, to work, to minister to people. There's a world out there that needs the gospel of the grace of God. They're not going to get it just by coming to church because they're not going to come to church. Ephesus was a church with aggressive deeds. I know thy works. Second, I know your toil. That word means painful labor in the original language. Painful labor. You know, folks, are we willing to put ourselves out? I'm, I, I, just, I can't help, help but compare us today and churches today with the commendations given to the church at Ephesus. For far too many people, please forgive me, I, I, I've just got to say it. For far too many people, coming to church means RIP. You know what that means? Rest in peace. Come in, sit down, and you can catch 30 minutes of rest, 45 minutes of rest, whatever. Painful labor. These folks went out of their way to do good works. Number three. I know thy perseverance. Again, this is out of verse 2. This is a commendation that they didn't start something and fail to complete it. I know your perseverance. What an enormous commendation that is. It's so easy to start something and then just let it fade away incomplete. Not Ephesus. So to begin with, this church is characterized by good deeds, by painful labor, and by perseverance. Number four in the list, out of verse two again, you cannot endure evil men. This is a church that was characterized by purity. They wouldn't put up. They wouldn't tolerate unclean living. They wouldn't tolerate false doctrine. Can you imagine a church like that in a city like Ephesus? To me, this is one of the most intriguing things about the city of Ephesus and the church at Ephesus. A city with all that evil and a church like we have here. Number five in the list. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be false. In the early days, the, the days of Ephesus, uh, a man might call himself an apostle. They examined that man. 
to find out if he was genuine. It was a church that had discernment. No heresy could find its home in the church at Ephesus. Number six, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and not grown weary. I, I, I just, you know, I've, I've thought about this during my preparation time. It's an amazing church. You've not grown weary. That was on the heart of the Apostle Paul, as he had written earlier. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due time you will reap if you faint not. Don't be weary. Man, I've taught this Sunday school class for nine years. And I love these little ones, but they're about to get the best of me. I'm going to quit. Perseverance. Loyalty right to the end. Loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his church. Number seven, out of verse six, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So this one is kind of interesting. Bible scholars and historians don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. Um, Generally, Bible scholars think of the Nicolaitans as those who were guilty of license, those who were guilty of immorality readily guilty of immorality, known for it. They advocated the uh, participation in the heathen feasts and in free love. Not this church. That wasn't tolerated here. Verse 6, strong words. You hate. We've come to a day when Christian people are not supposed to even dislike anything much less hate it. The church of Jesus Christ has come on hard days today in the era in which we're living if we're going to compare ourselves to the New Testament. Would you look at the last part of verse 6? Jesus has said earlier, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but then would you notice the last words, which I also hate? To say that Jesus hates sin anymore It's heretical in so many circles. You don't hate sin. Those people are just a little bit confused. Well, I would agree that they were confused, and many today are. If if the Bible is your measure, we're living in a doomed society, and the church is being repressed. We can no longer say what the Bible says. Or at least we are not supposed to. And may God raise up churches that just preach the Bible. And let the chips fall where they may. We love people. We give the gospel. But we do not condone activities that are contrary to the Word of God. What in the world could you say was wrong with the church at Ephesus? Well, if you haven't read the rest of these verses and you haven't had any reason to because you didn't know they were the text this morning, you wouldn't think there's hardly anything that could be said against the church at Ephesus. But there is a condemnation, and that's in verse 4. Jesus says to this church, after he said all these good things about it, he says, I have this against you that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. 
Here was a church, Church of Ephesus. And if we were to bring this forward to today, this would be a church in the 21st century. It would be having its prayer meetings, having its Bible studies, having its ladies' auxiliaries, having its layman's fellowship, having a missions outreach, having a, a, a very wonderful music ministry, having its youth work. But at the heart, it's sterile and dry. Why? Because it had left its first love. Sometimes I think when we read verse 4, we let the seven commendations that Jesus has mentioned override what he says in verse 4. Well, it can't be be all bad. It can't be too bad. I mean, look at all the good stuff they've been doing here. Seven particular commendations. One condemnation. But when you leave your first love, that's serious business. And that's what Jesus says. I have this against you. You have left your first love. What is your first love? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, personally. Ever been in love? Sure you have. Remember what it was like when you first, the thought first come to your mind, hey, I'm in love. Remember what that was like? It hadn't been that long, has it? (laughs) You know, when that thought came home to you, I am in love with this person. There was an enthusiasm about that. Enthusiasm is a good word. It comes from two Greek words, in and theos, in God. Originally, listen to me, originally, enthusiasm wasn't sitting at a state or Carolina ball game. Enthusiasm was one who was possessed of God in theos, in God. There's an enthusiasm with it. I'm afraid that churches are in danger of losing that enthusiasm and leaving their first love. Even today, you see people who are in love, whether it's Teenagers at 15 and 16 and experiencing puppy love. Puppy love, by the way, I think is what moms and dads call it because they don't want it to be the real thing. Uh, they want the 15, 16-year-old be at home. And Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> or if they've been married for a long time, 40, 50, 60 years. But you know what? I have discovered whether it's 15 or 16 or whether it's 60 or 80, genuine love has about it an enthusiasm. Genuine love is not ho-hum. There's an enthusiasm about it. That enthusiasm was what Ephesus had lost. By the way, when Jesus says, uh, you've left your first love, left means that they just turned it loose. It wasn't taken from them. They left. They just turned it loose the way you would have something in your hand and open your hand. They just turned it loose. Ephesus had lost that and had left that. It helps me to understand, as I read an illustration from an old Bible expositor, writer, preacher, 
G. Campbell Morgan was his name. And he told this story, and I'm borrowing it from him. He would tell a story about a good friend of his, a friend of long standing. And it seems that this friend had a little girl. His daughter was 10 or 11 years old. And that girl and her father were greatest of friends. Her grandfather were greatest of friends. Her father, I beg your pardon. They took walks together. They sat and talked. But one day, the father noticed that precious girl no longer had time to do with him the things that she was accustomed to doing and the things that he was accustomed to being a part of. She no longer had time for those things anymore. And this went on for some three months. And the father was very disturbed. Finally, the father's birthday came, and on the morning of his birthday, the little girl comes into his room, bringing him her gift. It was a pair of slippers. And the father thanked her profusely, but then he asked her, Honey, where'd you get the money to buy these? Well, girl says, I didn't buy them, Daddy. I made them. He says, how long have you been working on them? She said, for almost three months. The father looked at the little girl and said, Honey, on my next birthday, would you just buy me something and continue to walk and to talk with me so that I won't miss your companionship? If you will allow me to say it, I think that's how the Lord feels. He wants us to spend time with Him. He doesn't want us to turn loose and to walk away from our first love. I wonder, is Jesus concerned or grieved because you are walking away from your first love? To the church at Ephesus, and applicable for all of us where there's a need. There are three corrections that are offered here. Very quickly, let me note them for you. Verse 5, remember, when love for Jesus was primary in your heart, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Look back to that time when you Perhaps when you first came to trust Christ as your Savior, and there, your heart was filled and overflowing with the love. He was your life. He was your joy. You listened to sermons. You went to prayer meeting. You went to Bible study classes. Uh, you ministered around the church, and you never seemed to be too busy to do those things. <clears throat> you were never tired from doing them. Nothing diverted you from the worship of the Lord Jesus. But now... Think about your own life. Do some introspection in the messages this morning, would you? Do you find church services long? Do you find no time to go to prayer meeting? Do you find Sunday school not to be really interesting? Do you find ministry around the church, but uh, you're glad somebody does it, but you just don't have time to do it? Remember. Remember. Second. 
Also in verse 5, remember from where you have fallen and what? Repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Repent means to turn around. It means to go in the other direction. <clears throat> and there is an urgency about this. Don't delay. Do it now. Third corrective, start over. There it is. Do the deeds that you did at first. Listen to me, saints. Some of us need to go back into the time that we first came to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and do the deeds that we did then, now. Many churches have gone on hard days. Why? Because people have stopped doing what they did when they came to faith in Christ. That's why. We've gotten lazy. We have left our first love. Or at least he has been demoted. We don't do for him. We don't love him. We don't spend time with him. Uh, we don't serve his uh, causes. We're too busy. Do the deeds that you did at first. It's never too late to begin again. I want to close with this. There is a principle in verse 5. You will notice the end of the verse. You repent. You remember, you repent, you do the deeds that you did at the beginning, or else. You see that in the middle of verse 5? Or else I am coming to you and will what? Will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. There's a principle here, and the principle is very simple. Loss of love means loss of of light. That's what the verse says, isn't it? Loss of love means loss of light. Else I will come and remove your lampstand. It can happen to an individual. It can happen to a church. I'm asking you the question this morning, and I hope that you will be candid in your answer just to the Lord, not to me, not to anybody else. How is it with you? Why come to church if you don't ask, if you, if you aren't confronted with personal questions that deal with your spiritual life? To have a pleasant little story about somebody's figment of Jesus who wouldn't squash a fly, or, uh, who wouldn't squash a grape or, or swat a fly. That's not church. Church is to open the Word of God and get serious about what it says. Remember, repent. Do again those first deeds. And if not, Jesus says to the individual and to the church, I will remove your lampstand. How is it with you? Would you take your hymnal, please, and turn with us to number 363? 363. I would like for us to sing... Just the first two stanzas. 363, more love to thee, O Christ. And I hope that that will be the prayer that's on our hearts for every individual in this room this morning. Why did I not 
choose to sing the last stanza? I had a method. The last stanza says, Then shall my latest breath. I don't want our more love to thee to be held until we are on deathbed. That's why I left out the last stanza. I want to see us. I want to be involved with you. I want to see us do it now to love him more. Our deacon today is Ricky Powell. Ricky comes to dismiss us with prayer. Then we'll sing God be with you till we meet again and we'll go our way. Thank you for being in worship this morning. Thank you for your attentiveness. And may God speak to all of our hearts the truth of his word today. Ricky? Would you bow your head with me, please? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we have come here today to worship you. We have sung hymns of praise. We prayed for those who are sick. We We have made an offering to you with our goods that you have given us. And we have had a wonderful sermon from Revelation about Ephesian church. Dear Lord, as we leave this place, may we be full of zeal like Paul was in, in wanting to tell others about you. And as John said, Jesus said that Jesus was coming, and when he came, he was coming quickly. And it may be today, and John wrote in the last book of Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus. I ask you to bless those, Lord, like Dave McCreary and uh, Sarah to you, Lord, that are going through tough times. And we don't know, but you know the hairs on our head. Please bless them, Lord. Please protect them and lift them up and give them only your peace that they can understand. The the mission of the week, Lord, is Gideon's. And I always think of Dr. Johnson when we pray this week for, for the Gideon's. They're out there spreading the word. And that's our job, dear Lord. Help us to keep looking up and living for you. No matter what circumstances we face, dear Lord, know that you're in control. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.